Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, and Proverbs 6, verse 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In verse 32, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. It's the word of the Lord. Let's get into today's message. It'll be the, um, the last one um, before we take a break and we'll start to focus on Advent. But I, I, you know, toward the latter portion of this message, I, I do want to say some stuff about Christmas because it's so relevant to this subject matter. Um, this is part seven of our series on biblical um, justice. And I've entitled this message, um, I've entitled it Making People Orphans. Uh, we've learned so much and gone through so much in this series so far about justice. And if you haven't been with us, we have talked about, um, up, we're up to the point in the series where in the Bible, the repeated emphasis is on biblical justice is that, that we are to especially be mindful and protect those who are fatherless, the widows, and what the Bible calls the sojourner, or we, we, we would think, consider them as those who are outsiders, minorities, excluded. And these last couple messages is especially focused on why the fatherless are such a concern of God. And, um, you know, and today I want to talk about something that um, our society never talks about. You, you, just, you just never hear it. But it's incredibly important. Um, it is that our society creates fatherlessness. That's what we do. In the beliefs, the values that, are, that are, have ascended in our culture, we create fatherlessness. We make people incredibly... Last week I talked about all the different... Not all of them, but some of the most important vulnerabilities of the fatherless. And as you heard, if you heard last week's message, um, they are tremendous. That those who are fatherless, there's no way they have the same, they, that they can, they can go off into society. They have such a profound hurt and wound in who they are. And they, they, um, they grow up with, at such a huge disadvantage. And all around the world and throughout history, they are oppressed and exploited. But what our society does, particularly in this current time in American culture, is we make people fatherless. And we make people fatherless right at the core of our sexual ethics. Our sexual ethics is oppressive. Our sexual ethics leads to fatherlessness, which means we lead right into injustice. You will never hear this in the universities. You won't hear this in universities. You will not hear this in the public schools. Our, our, um, the religion of our times does not believe in this because it's secular religion. And that's... And so, so much of when we started this series and, we, and so much of our time is so roiling and angry and there's profound fights about the issue of justice, I knew that if I was going to preach this at some point, I'm going to hit this subject matter. It's not a fun subject matter, but it's incredibly important. And so let's get into it. Part one, secular sexual ethics leads to injustice. Secular Sexual ethics leads to injustice. That's part one. Part two, I want to talk about, I've, been, I've mentioned this a couple times in the series, but I want to spend some extended period of time on it. The worst thing that comes out of our sexual ethics is abortion. It's, not, it's hands down the worst thing. And so part two is the horrible holocaust and injustice of abortion. America is a fundamentally unjust, unjust society. When I say fundamentally unjust, that means at the bottom of who we are as a society, we're utterly wicked. So if you ever think about history and you think, oh, you know, th those people who lynched black people in the past, they were a wicked people. We're better today. No, I'll say to you, that's not true. Oh, those people, they burned Jews. They were a wicked people. No, we're not better. We're the same. We're the same. That's what I want to argue today. Right? 
And part three, Christmas heralds the hope of true justice. So I just said this thing that was <laughs> so terrible. Um, but we really need mercy. And that's going to come from Christmas. And look at this. This is Christmas time. And in this time when we are such a dark people, in such a horribly dark and wicked culture of tremendous injustice um, that barely ever gets talked about, quite frankly, the most horrible injustice of our time doesn't get talked about. And let's talk about it today from, from the Bible's point of view. Okay. So let's get into today's text. Um, the first one, Genesis chapter 2.24. Well, I didn't lay it out in my... So we're going to have to take an extra minute or two. Genesis 2... I just want to quickly go through some of the Bible's teaching on sexual ethics. Now, the sexual ethics in the Bible is all throughout the Bible. And um, it's so clear that you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to be a pastor to understand it. In fact... If you are, I would say, if you're a ha average of average intelligence, 12-year-old, and you've taken in even just, you know, even a decent chunk of the Bible, you already know what you, you already know that the Bible believes the sex is for marriage, it's for covenant. So let me show it to you. This is, and it's before you even get out of the second chapter of the Bible, it's already there. Okay? So you can't say, I haven't read enough of the Bible <laughs> to have heard what the Bible's teaching on sexuality is. It's incredibly important, and I know it seems very, very unintuitive, but it's incredibly important to justice. Because it's incredibly important for what it means to be human and how we form human community and obligation and commitments. So here it is, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. So basically what has happened is God had Adam, and then he made, he made Eve. And then afterwards, this is what it says, verses 20, um, 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it says, verse 25, this is an incredibly beautiful passage. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So this verse, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's the vision of sex. It is the Bible's understanding that sex, covenant, marriage are all of one piece. It's a beautiful and glorious vision. And if we will practice sex inside of marriage, then this is what results. The man and his wife were both naked and yet they're unashamed. The world will not believe this. In fact, the world, our society, and culture, such as our culture, our time, culture after culture after culture, they do not accept this belief that sex is for marriage and it is for covenant. Now, some cultures do and some cultures don't. But again and again, it will break this. And what we get is a man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. Can we say that in our time? I don't think we could say that in our time. A man and a woman are together and if you would be naked in every way, this, is, this, this doesn't just mean physically naked, it means naked down to who you are in your soul. All we have is shame. All we have is just, there's incredible shame. There's so many people today, they get married and there's so much kind of like pain of the way they were sinned against and the way they have sinned that can they really even be truly honest and open in front of their spouse? And today we live, of course, in, it's, it's a, in the rampant, the rampant um, time of pornography and the numbers are horrific. Um, they say something like 70% of men have looked at pornography, and I don't know what the percentage of them who look at it habitually. So I'm not trying to attack anybody in this room, but that means it's in this room. And so that's in marriages. 
so right from the get-go, here we are. We, like verse 25, we don't, we, we don't know what that's like. Hmm. We don't know what that's like. Let's go to Hebrews 13.4. Just um, Hebrews 13.4. Maybe I'll just read it off the screen. Let's go to Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I want to say something about adultery. We just, I know that not long ago we did a, a series on the Ten Commandments that we call the Gospel Completes Law. Adultery isn't just you get married and then you cheat on your spouse. That's the most simple definition. But as I said in that series, if you have sex outside of marriage, you've already cheated on your spouse even if you're not married. And so um, we're an incredibly adulterous culture. And then Jesus ramps it up even higher. You know, you have lust for a woman in your heart. You've committed adultery. Okay, like the numbers of all the people who had sex before they got married, it's like we're an adulterous people. Then you say if you have had, had lust for a woman in your heart, now you're just pretty much like talking about 99% of all the men. And of course, in our culture too, it's just like, well, that's, well there's men who have lust for men. And so... We're a tremendously adulterous society. And um, one of the things that we've got going on in our culture is that we're adulterous people from our hearts and we want to be adulterous. We want to have, you know, have sexual freedom and then have people say it's okay. That's basically the reign, the reigning sexual ethics of our time apart from the Bible. You can have sex the way you want, and it's okay. It's basically you know, where we're li- the, the, the time we're living in. But the Bible says God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, I know if you're, let me just stop for a moment here. Um, if you are joining us today and you don't believe in Jesus, you didn't grow up in the church, I, 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 I just can imagine what some of you are thinking. This is so puritanical and so judgmental. And I want to just, just stop for a moment to say to you, I hope you'll continue to listen um, because I want you to hear that this is not intended to be a judgmental message. Okay. Judgment is from God. These words are straight and honest. We're living in a time where God, in a sense, He already threatens us to burn us all down. But He hasn't. And you know what that means? We're living in a time of mercy. And the gospel is, all these words are warnings of mercy, of wisdom. Now, I'm going to go to one more. Um, Proverbs 6.32. And, you know, I'm not just cherry-picking these. I could, there's so many other verses I could pick. I'm just, just, just for the sake of time, I'm picking three. Um, so let's go to it. He who commits adultery, and I already just said that we're such an adulterous culture. So you're like, I haven't, you know, I never cheated on my wife or my husband but we're, we collectively, we're a corporately adulterous people. Right? He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. <laughs> we're not just destroying other people. We're destroying ourselves. Now, I want to make a case for you today. Um, so we've, we've been hearing... Um, well, let me, let me, let me, I'll read it. This was last week's, one of last week's verse. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. And what I want to ask you today to do is connect the dots. These verses about the fatherless, I, I, I told you last week, the weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, they're all the same. Those people who are fatherless, they're among the weakest people in our society. They're often poor. Even if they end up making money, 
Maybe externally, economically, they aren't destitute, but often in their souls, they are. This is how we are. And where do we get to this point? We get to this point because there's this thing that happened in our society called the sexual revolution. And so, um, I know, let's just do a little history here. America is what we call a post-Christian society. And what we mean by post-Christian is the values of the society at one point were defined by Christianity. So the ethics of sexuality in the society, we used to, when I was younger, they didn't call them Christian ethics. They didn't even call them biblical ethics. You know what they called them? They called them traditional. <laughs> they called them traditional values. So uh, um, a, uh, an election would come around, and they would talk about the people who believed in traditional values. That was a very euphemistic way of saying people who believed in sexual ethics according to the Bible. That's what it meant. So if you go back 50 years, if you go back 100 years, all of Europe, 100 years ago, all of Europe believed this. I, I want to just say, um, when, I was a, when I was a boy, which I know some, for some of you, that's like a long time ago, okay? <laughs> but that's not that long ago. In the late 1970s and the early 80s, there was a TV show, really popular TV show. And it was called Three's Company. You know what it was about? It was about a man having two roommates who were women, a blonde and a brunette. And this man had a roommate. And they were in Southern California. They were in Santa Monica. They lived next to the beach. And their landlord would not, there was no way he would let a man have two roommates that were, that were women. And so this is Southern California in the late 70s, okay? So this man, they lied to their landlord and said that he was gay, even though he wasn't gay. And so that was part of the humor of the show, that he would have to pretend that he was gay <laughs> to his landlord <laughs> so this landlord wouldn't get so angry and kick him out. That was the late 70s and 80s. And so the joke in the show was that, you know, there's all this sexual tension in this show because, of course, this guy is like, you know, he's like, you know, his, his, his roommate, she would you know, walk across the living room wearing her lingerie and she's like a sexy woman. And then, of course, you would laugh. And, there's all, and the show was rife with sexual tension. You can just imagine. And so um, if you are young today, if you're a millennial or younger, you should go watch some old episodes of Three's Company. It's a funny show. Um, and you will probably laugh at how tame the sexuality in that show is. <laughs> That's what it was like. Um, in the late 70s and early 80s. And what had already happened is the sexual revolution, which had begun in the 60s, it's pretty much had already taken over our culture and was swallowing up biblical sexual ethics. And today, of course, that show is funny for a completely different reason. You get to the 90s, and you get to, you get to um, a later show called Friends. It's a worldwide so it's around the world, it's, it's, a, it's a globally famous TV show. And Friends has a complete, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, the sexual ethics in America is completely tipped. I mean, they, they just sleep with each other like it was, it's, like, it's, like, it's like nothing. And um, one of the things that you see in TV shows and movies all the time is you see, it's, it's like it's, there's no consequences. <laughs> it's all just fun. Um, these days, my wife and I watch a lot of, um, uh, you know, we've been watching Korean dramas. It's not because I'm Korean. It's because, it, you know what's nice about it? Is that a man starts falling in love with a woman, and in 30 minutes, they're not in bed. <laughs> That's what's nice about it. You know what's nice about it? They have to talk. And they have to really the, the falling in love part is slow. <laughs> and it's deep. That's what I love about it. Not, not because it's Korean. <laughs> not because it's Korean. But because the love is so much thicker and real. 
because they don't immediately use each other's bodies for their lust and their hunger and their loneliness. That's what I like about it. Um, What we have in the sexual revolution... So today, if you go to the universities or, you know, this is the basic doctrine. I'm going to just tell it to you. They don't tell it to you like it's doctrine. Because in the church, we call it theology and doctrine. Outside, they don't call it theology and doctrine. But that's basically what it is. Right? There's a piece of doctrine in the sexual, in the sexual ethics of our time. And, and I'm just going to tell it to you what it is. Here's the doctrine of our times. You, can, you are free to have sex with whomever you want, as long as there's consent. That's it. As long as there's consent, there is no harm. That's the doctrine. That's the belief. It's in all the TV shows. It's in all the movies. It's in school, starting in kindergarten. You don't believe me? Just, you, should, you, should, you should see. I don't know. In, my, in, in our school, kids' school district, I mean, the, my kids grew up in the Cupertino School District. I think they start sex education in first grade. So maybe first grade in my school district. And that doctrine is taught. It's basically taught since first grade. Yeah. And because this is the reigning doctrine, most of the sexual education... And, you know, where they, whenever they teach it, you know what it's, what it's for? The important fixation on the social um, is, one, do not judge anybody else. So there's a lot on not bullying or, like, not teasing. And two, it's about birth control and disease. Because in our time, what's important is don't judge anybody else's, you know, sexual behaviors and don't get disease and don't get pregnant. But they never tell you about things like loneliness. They never tell you that this is not a very helpful way to really slowly and deeply fall in love with somebody. They never tell you that if you go to sex very quickly, you'll be afraid of commitment. They never tell you that if you have had sex freely when you're a teenager, especially with a lot of different people, that you will have defiled your marriage bed and sex won't be so magical when you're married in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s. They don't tell you those things. The Bible tells you that It is not good for Adam to be alone. The man to be alone. You know what God gave for that? A woman. And then he said, let's have covenant, marriage. And then he gave this absolutely glorious gift. He said, in your marriage, you can have this glorious play. I would literally, let me call it play. Where you could be naked and not ashamed. And the Bible calls this one flesh union. The Bible has the absolutely the highest view of sex. <laughs> has the highest view of sex. That's why I want to tell you, it's not fundamentally judgmental. Really what it is, it's protecting something so important. That your soul, apart, apart from someone entering into your soul, because that's what it is. When you have sex with somebody, you are saying that your body can come into my body, which is the picture of saying your soul can come into my soul. And if your soul is empty because you've allowed your body to mix with other people's bodies, and over time, what you've done, you're, you're trying to fill up something that's so profoundly empty that by the time you get to the gift of what it is inside, what it's for, you'll be damaged. That's what this verse means. You're destroying yourselves. And this is what we're doing. So all around our society, what we have is is a tremendously broken and hurting people. Let me me say something that you, you will almost never hear. 
but I think it's absolutely true, and I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. Um, it's depression. Loneliness, depression, addiction. If you're so profoundly lonely, how can you not be depressed? And if you're so profoundly depressed, how can you not try to stop that pain somehow? So we're utterly depressed. We are such an addicted society. We're, okay, the, 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 uh, um, the, the uh, more respectable addictions are entertainment and food. The less respectable entertainment um, addictions, you know, social media, entertainment, video games, food, those are the respectable addictions. But then we get things like pornography, drugs, and it just, we're just destroying ourselves. On the Native American reservation of the people that I love so much on the reservation, this is the cycle. A young man or a young woman grows up without a father. They um, are lonely. They have some combination of drugs or alcohol, and then they have sex with somebody else. They may be, they're so desperately lonely, then they'll get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and then they'll be in love, and we'll fill each other up for a short period of time. And then it'll break down because it's apart from covenant and promise and sacrificial love. And then there's loneliness, depression, and then back to addiction. And then you go back to alcohol and then cycle that around again. And then it's inevitable there'll be children. Of pregnancy. And those children grow up inside of the cycle of loneliness and chaos without a father. Now, I said this to you about something I've seen firsthand on the reservation. This happened all around in our country. And just because it's not as immediately economically poor. This is happening in rich societies. You can go into the, the, the rich suburbs of our time. And I would say if you could look into the souls of people, it's the same. And if you live in a society like this, we are creating fatherlessness. We're creating fatherlessness. Because a father is not a man who has sex with a woman and then thus you know, like biologically fathers a child. A father is one who will say, I'll be with you. And these children, I'll die for these children. I'll protect these children. I'll die for you, my wife. When the time gets hard, it'll be on me. That's a father. And when my children need me, I will be there. When my wife needs me, I will be there. That's what our society needs. And whether you are poor or whether you are middle class or whether you are rich, let's be really honest, isn't that what everybody needs? And if you did not have that growing up, how can you grow up and compete with other people who did have that? We have this idea that like somehow... You have white people who, have, or, you know, they, they hate black people. And then thus, they have, they, we call it systemic racism. And, you know, the white people have more money than the black people. <laughs> but if the black people had fathers, just as much as white people, I think it would just be a matter of time before they make as much money and maybe more. I don't think the fundamental issue is race. It's this. <laughs> but our society, they will not touch it. Because the reigning religion of our times wants to say this. I want my sex. And we want to be in utter and profound denial that there is sin and guilt and cost. The cost is our children. It's the women and the children of our times. The men pay the price too. But it's the women and the children, they really pay the price.
Okay, so that's part one, okay? Let's go to part two. Let's talk about the place where I think it's particularly really, really bad. Now, um, for years, you know, I'm not afraid to talk about abortion, and sometimes I don't generally talk about it too often. Um, but um, our, our church is a pro-life church. So if you are a, a member of our church and you have the view that abortion may be okay or that, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a one of those we can agree to disagree or it's a political subject and Christians can agree to disagree, um, I will argue that I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> I don't think that's true at all. Christians should be on one side of this issue. Every single Christian should be on one side of this issue. There really shouldn't be any disagreement on this side of the issue. And it's only because the pressure in our society is so great and that, you know, the desire for sexual license is so great that um, there is a demand that, you know, abortion be available. But I don't think that's true. So what I want to say is this. In our society, this is kind of what, this is just from a preacher's point of view, I just want to let you know this is kind of what, how as a preacher thinks about this, okay? I have heard that if Christians go to our political leaders and say, would you please advocate for the unborn and protect the women and the unborn, you know what the polit- political leaders say? This is what they say. Regularly, this is, they've said this for decades. They say, that's a religious issue. And we're political leaders. And if, you, if we're in politics, if we go into religion, we're just going to get our heads handed to us so we can't be going into religion. That's what they say. And for years, if a preacher talks about abortion, you know what the complaint is? Oh, that's a political issue. See, the politicians say that's a religious issue. You know what they say to the preachers? Oh, that's a political issue. You can't talk about that. Because you're a preacher. You're supposed to be talking about the Bible and talking about God and theology. Please don't go into politics. That's not really your realm. Well, let me say to you today, I want to talk about the theology of it. So I just want to point to you places in the Bible, from the Bible. And so... Um, just, just for sake of time, I just, just, it's actually in multiple places in the Bible. Let me just offer you a couple. All right. So, this is a Psalm 139, verse 13. Verse 13 through 16. Just, just listen. Just listen. For you formed, this is you, this is a prayer. And you were saying, you is God. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. What is he talking about? He's saying, before I was even born, you knit me together. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You formed my parts. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Today we call that unformed substance a fetus. That's the word that we use. That's not the word the Bible uses. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. See? This is the way the Bible thinks about a person who's unborn. Let me offer you another place. In Genesis chapter 25, there is a a young woman, and she is having difficulty conceiving children. I know that's an incredibly painful subject. Infertility is an incredibly painful subject. It has been throughout all of history, and I know it's incredibly painful today, and I know that there are couples inside of our church that have wrestled with that pain. But here it is. It's in the Bible in chapter 25. She's a very, very important and special woman. And um, 
Here it is, verse 21 of chapter 25 of Genesis. And Isaac prayed to the Lord, Yahweh, for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. See, that's what the Bible calls them. The unborn, these unborn children, they're called the children, struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your home. She had twins. And apparently they're fighting, okay? They're bumping it. I mean, it's, it's tough, you know? Uh, I had a sister who, you know, she's you know, pregnant. She, she had a, she had, her child was like kicking. She didn't have twins. She was kicking, and she, she found it difficult. Just one kid kicking. Can you imagine if you had two kids kicking? That's what it was like in Rebecca's womb. And this is what her answer was. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. No, the older shall serve the younger. Yes, that's what it says. And so, really, the, then the babies are born. One, his name is Esau. He's the firstborn. He's born, like, firstborn by five minutes. And the younger is Jacob. And Jacob's name later is changed to Israel. He's the father of the children of Israel. I want you to ask you a question. I want to ask yourself a question. Of course, you know, this isn't in the Bible. But I want you to think about this the next time you meet a woman and she has twins. What if she didn't want those twins? What if she was afraid to have them because she was poor? What if she, she was afraid to have them because the man who had whom she had sex with and from whom they were conceived said, I don't want to be a dad. Why don't you get an abortion? You think about that. All throughout the history of Christianity, so if you think you're a Christian today and you think that it's okay to be pro-choice, that's the language of today, let me tell you, all the Christians throughout history say no. Everywhere, every time, all the different nations, every different, you know, I've studied church history. I've read passages where literally, um, you know, the church has come down really, really hard on abortion. And they stood against abortion in a time just like ours. In the times of, you know, in the early church times, it was an utterly rampant, oppressive, sexually licensed time. The Greco-Roman times. The, the Greeks... The, Greco the Romans, with following Greek culture, they would have babies. And then they would see if the baby was strong. And if the baby wasn't strong and cried too much, you know what they would do? They'd kill this baby. <laughs> the Spartans had this view. They just, just kill these kids. Because our people, we are strong people. Today, people think, there is this horribly wicked lie that abortion is somehow good for women. It's not great for Chinese women. It's not great for Indian women. Unborn Chinese and Indian women are killed by the millions. And of course, it's not great for American women, unborn or adults. So everywhere, all throughout history, this has been utterly an issue of justice. And so when the Bible says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, I want you to understand, how could this not pertain to abortion? It has to pertain to abortion. It absolutely must pertain to, uh, pertain to abortion. And um, when I was younger, well, there was this, um, you know, when I was a young man, especially when I was in college, there was this accusation to people who, um, you know, were pro-life or anti-abortion. You know, I, I just want you to understand, this is the way our, our propaganda works. If they don't like what you're saying, they always say you're against something. You're anti-abortion. That's, that's the way they put it. So over time, 
the people who are anti-abortion and say, no, no, we're pro-life. And of course, not everybody who's pro-life is a Christian, but the, the vast majority of people who are active in the pro-life movement for decades, they're Christians. They're evangelical Protestants and they're Catholics. Um, I think I told you the story. Um, I, 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 there was a hospital where my children were born. And on, on the day when they were going to have a public board meeting, um, the pro-life folks and the pro-choice folks came. And for 40, the first 40 minutes, um, they, they, they listened to the public for one hour. You know what they talk about for 40 minutes? Abortion. The board of the hospital gives 20 minutes to the pro-life people, and they give 20 minutes to the pro-choice people, and then they give 20 minutes to the other issues. You know what that other 20 minutes took? It took five minutes because nobody cared about any of the other issues. But on this issue of justice, it took 40 minutes. And I walked into the room, and it was really easy to know which was the right side because I, I looked on this side. First of all, there were more people on the pro-life side. The room was like, all the pro-life people were saying, this side of the room, there were just a handful of people on the pro-choice side of the room, a bunch of people saying, this side of the room. And there was like a nun and a Catholic priest sitting over there. I walked over there, sat next to the priest, and I said, I presume this is the pro-life side. He said, yes. <laughs> all the different expressions of Christianity are over there. <laughs> now, I just want to say a couple other things to you before we get to Something more encouraging, right? Um, there's a lot of messages in our society. But I want to encourage you. Okay, I want to tell you something about the bad messages, but I want to encourage you. There's something very interesting going on in our culture. When I was in college, the idea that our society would be moving toward becoming more pro-life was unthinkable. If you were pro-life in college, you were so uncool, all my friends, all my friends, including some of the ones who said they were Christian, wanted to say, you know, like, well, you know, it's, it's a woman's choice, that kind of thing. I didn't believe that, but that was, that was, a, that was a tone. But then something really interesting started happening. Um, There's a movie in 2007. It's a raunchy comedy. It's called Knocked Up. Ever heard of this movie, Knocked Up? It's not a great movie. It's really interesting. You know what it's about? It's about this guy, and he's kind of, honestly, he's kind of a loser. He sits around smoking dope with his friends, and their goal in life is to come up with a website where they have all these nude scenes, and they think they're going to drive traffic there, and that's how they're going to make money. That's, that's their goal. That's why I think they're like losers. He, has, he doesn't have a job. He spends a lot of time getting stoned. But somehow, he like, meets a girl and who is, she's smart, she's beautiful, she's got a good career, she's got a future. And they have a one-night stand, and she gets knocked up. And there's a scene in the movie, she's pregnant. She, she's now at that place. She want to marry this guy? <laughs> have this guy's baby? But this is also her baby. And she's not sure what to do. She's scared. And there's this place in the movie where she's having a conversation with her mom. And her mom, they're upper middle class. You know, they're educated, well-to-do. And her mom basically tells her, well, why don't you just go fix it? And you know what that means. You know what that means. But it's really interesting. In this movie with, that recognizes the raunchy sexual ethics of our time is questioning where that leads. And this woman, she makes a very, she does not follow her mom's advice. And she decides to try to have the baby. And it's a nice story. What starts to happen is this man who's basically the selfish, kind of deadbeat loser, he starts to, he gets a job and he kind of cleans up his act and he wants to try to like get better himself so he could become a dad. That's the message of the movie. In the same year, another movie came out called Juno. Have you ever heard of this movie? Oh, man, this movie was discussed in the New York Times. 
And when you read reviews, I, I, I encourage you, go, go find it. You could tell that the people who control our culture and the discourse, they found this movie very, very disturbing because it was about a courageous young teenage girl. And you know what happens? She has a boyfriend. They have sex. She gets pregnant. And there's a sequence where she's going, she's walking into the abortion clinic there's one pro-life girl who's a Christian, and she basically, you know, she could tell she's a Christian because she talks about Jesus. She's, she's actually Asian. She's like this Asian-American teenager. She's like this one teen. She goes, and she says, your, your baby has fingers, something like that. And this teenager goes, fingers? And she chooses life. It's an absolutely terrific movie. Great movie. And it was said back then when I was, a, you know, when I was a, in college that Christians are just judgmental people. They don't care about the women. They don't care about these, um, on, on these babies. Are they going to help them, these poor kids, when they're born? And over the last decades, the answer is yes. Huh. There's, this, there's a movement that's what we, it's been called crisis pregnancy centers. They're usually run and supported by Christians. And girls like Juno, desperate girls like Juno, they find out that there's a place where they can go and people will love them. And let me tell you what crisis pregnancy centers are. It's justice. It's God's kind of justice. Where there's mercy, where there's forgiveness for the fatherless and for the scared women. It's God's kind of justice. Now, let me say one more thing before I go to close my message. This is such a raw and painful subject. I, I, I've known sisters in, in the Lord who have had abortions. I know brothers in Christ who have essentially done the wicked thing of telling some girl that they knocked up to have an abortion. And that stain is so painful. And I'm not, I'm not going to put any fine, there's no fine line to put on it. Yeah, it was wicked. But there is washing. There is forgiveness. There is new life. Because of Jesus. That's the bottom, bottom line. And these brothers and sisters who have gone through this, you know, they're in a sense, they're sinners and have been sinned against. They are the victims and the victimizers of an unjust and wicked society. And yet, through Jesus, they have found forgiveness and liberation. There is mercy and grace and his justice. And let me close this message. Gosh, um, I'm taking too long here. Um, but I want to give you these passages. Christmas proclaims this justice. It's so beautiful. I want to read to you two passages that speaks to, and I want, while I'm reading this passage, I want you to think about sexual ethics and abortion. Mostly when people hear these, they're incredibly famous passages. You all know them. Nobody ever thinks about abortion, but it's there. Huh. It's absolutely relevant. I want you to hear it. This is Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband, actually her fiancé, Joseph, being a, and listen, what's that word? A just man. Being a man of justice. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. If you are a Christian today and people make mistakes and they have, get pregnant outside of wedlock, Please don't 
put them to shame. Let's be like Joseph. And have his kind of justice. I want to say that. And if you don't believe in Jesus today, and you think that Christianity is just about judgmental sexuality and prudish people, I want to say to you that if you see somebody who's like that, and they say they're Christian, I want to say to you, they're not Joseph's kind of Christianity. Real Christianity. And so he goes on. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. <laughs> this part's so important, I have to wait, okay? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see that? That story? It's like the drama of Juno is right there. Matthew chapter 1. And you know what Joseph decided to do? Be a dad. I want you to think about this. If Joseph doesn't make this decision, the Son of God is born fatherless. Hmm. Just think about that. If Joseph doesn't make this, this decision, Mary, the mother of the Son of God, may be very, very tempted to concert her abortion. Hmm. Just think about that. Hmm. But a man said, I will follow God and be a dad. Even though I didn't, it wasn't me whose conception this child came from. Hmm. Let me give you another verse. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, even though you look like a single mom. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb Leap for joy. Not the fetus in my womb. The baby in my womb, because she's pregnant too. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So here's what's going on. You have a woman. She's Elizabeth. She's an old lady. And by miracle, she's having a baby. My baby would be John the Baptist. And now, here's a young woman. They're like distant relatives. She comes to visit, and probably she's going to start getting bigger, and everybody knows that this baby is coming about before she got married in a very, very traditional, socially conservative society. Where does she go? She'll go to a relative who'll understand. <laughs> and when she goes, what happens is, inside of the womb, this baby leaps for joy. Brothers and sisters, please think about that when you think about the issue of abortion. When you think about our society. Christmas heralds justice. Heralds forgiveness. Forgiveness for single mothers. Forgiveness for the unborn. Forgiveness and washing and renewal and new kinds of life. I said to you at the beginning of this series that justice is first and foremost an attribute of God and then I told you that first ultimately justice is love from God. God never looks at people and just sees groups. He doesn't just see black people or poor people or white people. You know, He sees every single person. 
And he sees them, even before we see them, he knit them in their mother's womb. And he demands that they all be protected. That's real justice. And since we are tremendous failures of justice, and since his justice demands that all those who failed justice, that he would judge and condemn and burn down, but since he did not want to do that and he wanted to love us and restore us with true and great justice, he sent his son and he would be the most vulnerable. He would at one point be unborn. He would be in danger of potential abortion. Yes, they had abortion in the first century. Just because they're Technology wasn't as good, didn't mean they didn't do it, they did it. And yet, because of a beautiful young woman and a young man, they chose God's way. So that this most precious baby could be born. And so that every baby and every child could be born and be given even if they don't have an earthly father, this son, this most precious son, came to pay the price of our injustice so that he could fulfill the true justice so that every child could be born and be given, even if they don't have an earthly father, the heavenly father. You and I, even if we have a bad earthly father, And if you are listening to this message, even if you had no earthly father and you were abandoned by him, even if you were abandoned by your mother, and as I said last week, my mother and my father could abandon me, but God will take me in. Christmas says to you, you are loved. You are precious. The church says to you today, God's people says to you today, because of Jesus You are loved. You are precious. You are forgiven. You are washed. This is real justice. So brothers and sisters, even though we are weak in the world, if Christ is for us, who can be against us? The whole nation, the whole people, all our education system, our government, They can be against us. But neither heaven, nor hell, nor angels, nor demons, nothing can stand against us if Christ is for us. And Christmas says he is for us. (laughs) This is justice, brothers and sisters. Let us be patient, let us be merciful, but let us be bold. And let's stand for real justice with all of its mercy and its compassion and all of its courage that's needed. And let us receive that great forgiveness and hope for a deep and broken time. Let's pray. Lord, this is an utterly painful thing to talk about because it cuts us so deep. And yet today we're going to go to your table And boy, do we need you. We're going to receive and eat of your body, your body which was knit in a womb, your body which was placed in a manger, in a feeding trough of an animal, your body which was crucified for our sakes so there could be real justice, the kingdom of God. Thank you that there's forgiveness. Thank you that there's hope. The world always feels like we're going to lose here. Real justice looks like it's just going to lose. But that's not true. You have already won. And even if today it seems like we're losing, oh, it's not over. Oh, it's not over. You have already had the final say. And when we are in you, 
Christ in you. We are more than conquerors through you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.